Welcome to City Reach Oakton Sunday morning service. My name is Abra Padacharji, and I'm one of the elders of City Reach Oakton. The good news is that I don't know how many of you are watching my second sermon at City Reach Oakton, but I'm going to assume that it's far more than the church pews could accommodate. So just go with me, okay? I want to welcome you to God's Word this morning as we continue our study in the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and we've been studying it for a few months. It's a book that has everything. You've got bad guys, and you've got underdogs. You've got, um, you've got people who need help, murder, miracles, plagues, and then the dramatic rescue of an entire nation. And then you've got God showing up and speaking audibly to an entire nation to tell them how to live. That same God wants to speak to you today about the deepest desire of his heart. So let's just stop a minute now and just pray. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate Word, I pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim the Word in the power of the Spirit. And I pray that the same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers assembled online to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law even as you as promised. All this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's message is from Exodus chapters 25 to 31, and it's about tent making. Now, I know something about tents. When I was six years old, our family moved to Kenya in East Africa. We were following my father, who had taken a job there and gone before us, and I can distinctly remember getting off the plane craning my neck around to see if there were any lions or leopards on the tarmac to greet us. There weren't. Uh, but in Kenya, I managed to stay in a luxurious safari tent. Let me show you an example. This is a tent from a camp in the Serengeti Plains of Africa. As you can see, tents can be really hard work. But the thing about this luxury tent is that it's not going anywhere. It's spectacular, but it isn't really camping. It's more like glamping. Anyone who can afford it can stay there. And it's the guests that move on, not the tent. This is just a temporary respite from the heat of the Serengeti Plains of Africa. This is not the kind of tent that Exodus chapters 24 to 31 tells us about. Exodus is all about God and his people. Here's an overview of Exodus in three very distinct sections, right? So the first section, the first 15 chapters, is about how God demolishes the house of slavery, and, and the whole, whole story is dedicated to that. God does this because he remembers his promises and his people. He appoints a mediator, Moses, and ensures he's fully qualified and trained for this task of deliverance. In the second section, God delivers a deserved destruction to his enemies, and a frightful joy to his people, and prepares to rebuild by exposing how deeply his people need the law to know him. And Pastor Jeff spoke to that last Sunday. This is where the book gets its name from. The third section is where we are right now. In this third section, chapters 19 to 40, God builds his house in the midst of his people. God says to Moses, Right at the beginning of the instructions in chapter 25, verse 8, 
and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Here is the driving motive behind the commission to build. God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. He rescued them and brought them to himself in chapter 19, verse 4 we see. He's given them himself in the book of the covenant. Now, he wants to live with them forever. They are desert nomads, living in tents. So he will be a desert nomad, living in a tent. They'll be moving around, so he will be moving around. Where, they, where he leads, they will follow, but he won't lead them from afar. He wants to be right there in the middle of their camp. Today's message is not a tent-making manual. It's about showing you the heart of God. And there's three things that I want to share with you today. Firstly, what God wants with us. Secondly, the obstacle that gets in the way. And thirdly, what God has done about it. So, what does God want with us? It's one of the most important questions we'll ever ask. And I know that there's many of you that are sitting there with a lot of different questions out there. Many of them having to do with the pandemic, many of them having to do with work and what starts, many of them having to do with relationships, many of them having to do with what happens next. But I just want to draw you this morning to the big question, the most important, what is it that God wants with us? Now, most of us get the answer to this question wrong. Some of us want things from God. We want God's blessings and gifts not God himself. We try to use God to get our desires. This is worshiping God for what he can give us. If we obey him, we hope he'll give us the good life. We have a relationship with God because we want him to bless us. Then, then there are those that put themselves over God, abandoning God in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes, the implementation of useful principles for life. We believe we can control God by how we live. And at the heart of this perspective is the belief that God owes us something for all the sacrifices that we make. Maybe you believe the answer lies in living for God. Your focus is on accomplishing great things for God. And now that, that sounds a lot better, but because we think we really will lay down our lives sacrificially and do something for God that really matters. We want a relationship with God so that we can do something for him. In some ways, we see ourselves as God's wingmen. Do any of these approaches characterize your perspective of that answer? Are you here today because you want something from God? Are you here today because you're looking for a set of principles, an instruction manual that you can follow that will lead to successes in your life? Are you here today because you want to lay down your life in service to God? Or are you here today thinking that if you do your part, then God will do his part and then your life will turn out pretty well? According to the book of Exodus, all of these approaches fall short. Why? Because none of them, not one of them, is really the good news. None of them really captures the magnitude of what God wants with us. So what does God want with us? It's actually quite simple. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may 
dwell in their midst. In, in chapter 29, verses 45 and 46, it says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So hear this. God's primary purpose isn't to give us things, to be managed, or for you to live your life for him or under him. God's primary purpose is to live with us, that he may dwell with us and be our God. In fact, that is the very thing that sets God's people apart from everyone else. In chapter 33, which we haven't read today, Moses says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of this earth? You see, it's God's presence that sets us apart. Think about what that means for a minute. What was Israel's primary problem when they were in Egypt? Now, you and I may think that their primary problem was that they were slaves. They were in slavery and they needed to be rescued. Now, that was a significant problem, but it wasn't their main problem. Their main problem was God wasn't living with them. God wants to dwell with his people. We were meant to live in his presence and God will do everything possible to make his home amongst us. And that's why he took them out of Egypt so that he could dwell with them. Not only does God choose to live with us, but he goes to great lengths to do so. In Exodus 25 to 31, God specifies precious materials to construct the tabernacle. There's onyx, pure gold, a bronze altar, and so on. This is a very costly build. There's a lot of skilled workmanship going on that goes into the construction of the tabernacle. And there's a lot of very specific instruction from God on how it's meant to be. No room for your own flourishes. On the slide, I have a Lego version of what the tabernacle would have looked like based on this passage from Exodus. Sure looks different from that tent in Kenya, doesn't it? But here's the thing. It was just a tent. The ordinary word for tent takes place in Exodus 26.7 and occurs frequently after that. It's a common word for tent, the same word that's used for tents that the Israelites use in their travel through the wilderness. God's tabernacle was the tent God used when God went camping. That's what it was. God is so committed to living with his people that he's willing to humble himself just as he does later when Jesus takes on human flesh so that he can live amongst us as one of us. So consider what that means. God is incredibly relational. He wants to make us his treasured possession. He wants to live with us spend time with us, and be our God. He isn't interested in being the means by which we acquire our treasure. He wants to be our treasure himself. We see this through the whole Bible. In the beginning, Eden was a place where we could live in God's presence. But then humanity was expelled from God's presence because of sin. It's the major theme of the Old Testament. The phrase, I will be with you, occurs in some form for almost a hundred times in the Old Testament. And then we get to Jesus in the New Testament, who is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You would think that this is amazingly good news, right? Our creator wants a relationship with his creation, and he reaches down to us because we're incapable 
of reaching up to him. But here's the kicker. Most of us don't really think it's good news. Our reaction is often like that of the Israelites. The last time they encountered God's presence, fear and trembling. In Exodus 19, Moses spoke to God and God answered in thunder. Moses down at the foot of the mountain of the people, God from above the mountain wrapped in smoke and thick darkness with fire and earthquake and trumpet blast thundered out his 10 commandments to his people. Verse 16 says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The truth is that we might like the idea of God in our midst, but the reality of an awesome, holy God, great God, is a whole different matter. His tent is going to be right in the middle of the Israelites' camps, surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel. You can see the problem, right? The heart of Christianity is a relational God that wants to live with us. That's the good news. But the bad news is that there's an obstacle that gets in the way. It's an obstacle that only God can deal with. That's the second big idea we can learn from this passage. You see, the whole second half of the book of Exodus is about the design and the construction of the tabernacle. The only exception is the passage that we're going to be actually looking at next week in chapter 32. You see, when God is giving instructions for the tent where he will live amongst them, the people of Israel are making a golden calf, a graven image, an idol, to take the place of the Lord their God. They were breaking the covenant that God had just made with them before the ink were dry. They were cheating on God before even the honeymoon had begun. That's something that a holy God just cannot stand. There's the good news and the bad news. God wants to be in your life, but he's so holy a sinner can't enter his presence. What's the solution to this problem? Well, Exodus doesn't tell us, but the book of Hebrews does. In Hebrews 7.27, the passage that was read to you by Phil, it gives you the answer. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. The Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus came on a mission. He was born in Bethlehem just over 2,000 years ago because Jesus came to do something and be someone. That's the reason he was born. He was a man on a mission. A bit like the Bhattacharya family these last five weeks. Some of you may be aware that we weren't actually here with you this Christmas. We were in Singapore. We were on a mission that seemed like a really difficult one. <laughs> Among the many different places that we've lived as a family, from 2006 to 2010, we lived in Singapore. We began as a family of four. Our two boys, Arman and Farhan, my wife Sandra and myself. We were there because of my job, and in 2008, God gave us our third child, Tara, and we became a family of five. We also made a decision to become permanent residents of Singapore and then eventually applied for Singapore citizenship. It came with a red passport that opened many doors, and we believed that our future was going to be on the island of Singapore. The red passport also came with significant responsibility, those that we've had to fulfill almost 10 years later. You see, this tiny country that's only about 50 years old and is about one-fifth the, one the size of Greater Adelaide, but has four, four and a half times its population, really wants to make sure that its citizens 
have a very clear sense of national identity. The citizens know who they are. They do it in three ways. Education, everybody has to go to a government school. Housing, most of Singapore lives in government-provided accommodation. And national service. Now, national service in Singapore is a law that requires all male Singaporean citizens and second-generation permanent residents to serve for two years in active military duty. We have two boys. While they attained Australian citizenship in 2017, until they are 21, they cannot give up their Singapore citizenship, which means that they both need to do two years of national service. And so, at the end of last year, just as the Omicron virus had made its debut in South Africa, the Bhattacharjee family took advantage of the open vaccinated travel lane that had opened up between Singapore and Australia, and we set out on a mission to try and figure out how national service will work out for our boys. Truth be told, as we set out, all we could see were obstacles. It was expensive to travel at a time of pandemic. The cost of the PCR tests alone for the whole family cost more than flying there and back. Accommodation loomed as a significant problem. You see, we have no family in Singapore, and um, Singaporeans are not allowed to do short-term rentals. So getting an Airbnb was out of the question. Every flight and airport seemed like a petri dish of contagion. And once we got past that, we'd have to deal with the Singapore government, an uh, institution that's not renowned for its flexibility or understanding. We were also very anxious about whether our children, our three children, would be able to return with us if we did go to Singapore, or would they be stopped at the border? We flew through Melbourne because Melbourne and Sydney were the only cities that had vaccinated travel lanes. And the first obstacle was when we reached Melbourne. That was that Arman's bag. Remember, we were going to sort Arman out. His bag was the only bag that didn't make it onto the baggage carousel when we arrived in Melbourne. So we had six bags. We had to check in to the counter. But the main man's bag wasn't there. Now, it wasn't the airline's fault. It turned out that somebody else had picked it up. They had a red bag. That was still going spinning around the carousel. But luckily, we were able to reach them. They were hiring a car, and they were able to come and pick that up. But that seemed like a really good beginning. Then we walked through what was one of the busiest international airports in Australia. They only had one counter open for international flights that entire day. Imagine the Melbourne airport with most of the lights turned off, nobody to ask, and we had to find counter P where Singapore Airlines was checking people in. We found it, and checking in was nerve-wracking because even though our papers are in order, several others in the line were turned away in tears. Some because their PCR test was a few hours outside of the margin. Another because their vaccination is not on the list of accepted vaccines. Another because they had a RAT test instead of a PCR test. It was heart-wrenching to watch, and my level of anxiety just started to grow more and more. We landed in Singapore at 9.30 that evening. And as we got off that plane, we were, we were reminded that international travel in a time of pandemic is serious, deadly serious. Changi Airport was dark, flew few flights were landing, and if anyone was smiling, it was tough to see behind their masks. So we got our local SIM card so we could get this contact tracing app going, and we headed to passport control with my entire family with me, desperately hoping that we could do what we had set out to do. Well, let's go back to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Let's just look at the three main points that I had made earlier. One, what does God want more than anything else? He wants to be with us. Two, what's the obstacle that's stopping us? 
It's our sin which cannot coexist with the Holy God. Well, how do we get past this obstacle? Through the Lord Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, who's now at the right hand of God, interceding for us as a high priest does. So, if those three are, truths are, are there in Scripture, how then shall we live? I am mindful that many of you would have made New Year resolutions to start over in some way at the beginning of the year. Maybe a bad habit or a secret sin that you want to be free of. Remember that God can demolish the house of slavery. Perhaps it's a relationship that needs restoring or there is unforgiveness in your heart. Whatever it is, deal with it because it's an obstacle to God's presence. Many of my thoughts and concerns at the beginning of this year are about our wonderful church. In the last four months since I've been appointed an elder of this church, I've been challenged in ways that I could never have asked or imagined. Four of our six elders are brand new. We said goodbye to our senior pastor, appointed an interim senior pastor, and we've seen several changes amongst us church staff. In this time, I've encountered conflict, uncertainty, hurt, and cynicism. Our flock is unsettled, and we're still gelling as an eldership and dealing with an enormous backlog of actions. We're striving to build and to move forward, and yet progress is painfully slow. This last Monday, I chaired a meeting of the elders that started at 6.30 p.m., and I got home after midnight. Even though we had made progress and resolved some very important things, by the end of that meeting, I felt completely defeated, empty, inadequate, ill-equipped, and flawed. A broken jar of clay that I had to preach the word to you in five days. So you see, the presence of God is not an abstract theological concept for me this week. I needed the presence of the Lord desperately, and he taught me a great deal. I had to consider what the Bible says about us. I had to confess my own sinfulness is the primary problem, like David did in Psalm 51. I had to confront the reality of my sin, and I had to commit to a plan to move from where I am to where God wants me to be. And lastly, I was encouraged to continue, despite my discouragement. God reminded me that the process of heart and life change is a process, not an event. So brothers and sisters, this is how we should live. Do as I did and continue to do. Continue to consider. Continue to confess. Continue to commit. And continue to continue. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit within us provides us with the hope and help we need to keep pressing on. Surround yourself with believers who will walk with you. Seat yourself under good preaching. Dive into the word and pray even when you don't feel like it. There is a day when sin will be eradicated. Until then, our Lord has given us everything we need through his Holy Spirit in us. Stay encouraged and watch the Lord bless you with a harvest of good fruit. The truth is that ultimately these four actions alone won't produce change in me. Only the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God will produce lasting heart change. But that, my dear brothers and sisters, is what I want to remind you. This is all about God in us. You see, it's, it's an incredible progression. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God was amongst us, in a tent, camping, but amongst us. 
In the New Testament, we encountered God with us, walking, talking, discipling, teaching, and being crucified. And then in Acts, the Holy Spirit was given to us, and we were transformed by God in us. Fundamentally, the whole Bible and the whole gospel in today's sermon is all about God's presence. But before I go, let me take you back to Changi Airport in Singapore as the Bhattacharya family approached passport control. We got through. The papers weren't in order. I had to fill them all over again, and that took a little bit of time. But they led us through, and I know that God opened that border. We took our PCR tests and then turned out to be negative. And I know that God protected us from the virus in airplanes and airports. I also really wanted to honor our community group who walked this journey with us, even as they prayed from Adelaide. The Gardners, the Thorpes, the Johns, Daphne, Deb, Suha, and Christina shared our hopes and fears and encouraged us, prayed for us, equipped us with gifts, and rejoiced at God's goodness to us. Even as they struggled with the pandemic here in Adelaide, we knew that they were interceding for us, and I will always treasure the messages and updates back and forth in our little WhatsApp group. Through friends, God provided homes that allowed us space, freedom, and luxurious comfort. We stayed in five different homes, each one miraculously becoming available just as we had to leave the last one. We were able to borrow a car, and believe it or not, we drove more than 1,400 kilometers on that tiny island in our time there. God allowed Arman and Farhan to fulfill all of their statutory obligations to the Singapore government. Arman passed his fitness test for the army, which means that he has to serve for two months less. And we were able to bring him back to Adelaide so that he can spend that time with us while he waits for his enlistment date. Arman was also able to secure admission at his first choice university in Australia, at his first choice course. And then we asked the university, and they agreed to defer his admission for two years to allow him to complete his national service. In the five weeks that we were in Singapore, we were reminded often that God was with us. Shelter, he provided us homes. Food, the law changed a few days before we arrived that allowed five people to eat together in a food court or a restaurant. Relationships, we were able to spend quality time with good friends from a decade ago as a family because only five people were allowed to visit at any given point in time. And we were to able to encourage them as they struggled with sickness, loved ones who were suffering and their own Christian walks. However, the biggest reminder I had in those five weeks that God was with, was with us and in control was on our fifth day in Singapore. Arman and I went into the belly of the beast when Arman reported to the Central Manpower Board, which oversees national services for the Singapore government. I was allowed to wait while Arman did a whole battery of medical tests over five hours. As Arman finished, he brought a young man over and introduced him. Raj is a new friend that Arman made as they went from station to station during the medical test. Raj is also a Singaporean of Indian origin that had studied in Australia and, like Arman, returned to Singapore that very morning to report for his national service obligations. Arman and Raj were in line together when Raj noticed the cross that Arman wore around his neck, a farewell gift that Arman had received from a friend at Ute here in Oakton. It turned out that Raj had just recently trusted Christ and desperately was looking for a Christian friend. He was intending to tell his parents of his decision for Christ that very evening. They still did not know. And as we spoke, I realized that Raj's parents were much like my own parents. 
devout religious Hindu, conservative Hindus. And right there and then, in the belly of the beast, in the central manpower board, I was able to share my own testimony with Raj and prepare him for how his family would react to his decision. Arman, Raj, and I prayed and felt God's presence. Raj is someone we think of often, and we were able to spend time with him as a family while we were there, and Arman was able to spend some quality time with him. And his parents are really struggling with their son having to decide to become a Christian. So I don't know what your situation is this morning, but I do know that whatever it is, God wants to be there with you and for you. There's nothing more that he wants, and he has done everything to make it possible. You see, there was nothing we Bhattacharjis had done to deserve God's presence with us in Singapore. We're just as flawed, sinful, and broken as you. But our brokenness points to Jesus, who was broken for us. Our Creator created us, and He can fix us, broken as we are. That's why His deepest desire is to be with us and in us. In Asia, names mean a great deal. We see that throughout the Bible. And I love it when Pastor Graham is dedicating children because he likes to ask what their names mean. My wife Sandra and I named our firstborn with the first name from Urdu and his middle name from Hebrew, and his family name would be Bengali. Arman Emmanuel Pracharji translates as, the deepest desire of our heart, our Arman, is that God is amongst us, Emmanuel. We wanted it then. But 18 years later, we have learned it in a whole new way. You see, I thought we went to Singapore to sort things out for Arman. I thought it was all about us. And God reminded me that it wasn't. I think he took us there to encourage Raj and our friends from over a decade ago. And perhaps he took us there so that we could share his goodness with each of you. Wherever you are, and whatever your circumstance, that, that is the heart of the Christian message. God wants to live with his people, and he's humbled himself to do so. Please join with me and pray as I finish up, and pray particularly for young Raj, whom we left behind in Singapore, that he will feel, learn, and immerse himself in God's presence, even as he chooses to honor his mother and father. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can see your heart, and your heart is a relationship with us. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you've made it possible for that relationship to happen. And Father, as people just watch online and pray from different parts of the city, we pray that this, this word will bring glory to you and joy to the city, and that your presence will define us as we go forward. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our High Priest. Amen.